Welcome to a Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkan Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to talk about a very exciting website, Pinterest. Joining me, I have Erica Shimizu Banks, who leads federal policy for Pinterest. She's going to walk us through what Pinterest does, what their policy positions are, and also a lot of we're going to chat about a lot of the policy questions that TechCredit works on. Erica, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So for our listeners who don't know who, what Pinterest is, which I don't know if you live under a rock or maybe in another country, mm-hmm. what is Pinterest? Well, the rock fair, uh, but uh, Pinterest is actually becoming quite the global company. Uh, we're in over 20 countries. And Pinterest is the visual discovery engine for finding and saving recipes, outfits, products, home decor, and other ideas, really any ideas you want to try. Our mission is to inspire everyone to create a life they love. And so far, globally, uh, 322 million people are finding inspiration on Pinterest every month. Um, that's our monthly average users. And then in the U.S., that's 87 million people. I wonder how many of them are like brides. I've heard a lot of brides use Pinterest. I imagine it's probably the majority. (laughs) I mean, you know what? The wedding uh, planning process I've uh, heard as I was part of a bridal parties multiple times is very exhausting. So thank you for doing your part and making it easier and creating inspiration for all everyone here. Our pleasure. So does Pinterest work uh, similarly to other big platforms? Is it like part search engine, part content host? So uh, in a way, yes, but I think what separates us from most uh, social media companies is that First, we actually don't consider ourselves a social media company. We call ourselves personal media because going back to our mission of inspiration and making sure that everyone can find the inspiration to create the life they love, um, that's a very personal journey. And so uh, we've actually limited a lot of the sort of network type um, features of the platform um, and really focus on empowering users with choice and transparency as to how the platform works um, and what they have control over in their experience so they can protect their private choices Um, and searches. You have options to make a private board, for example. Um, You're not required to use your real name to sign up for an account. Um, Different ways to ensure that you can um, pursue that journey of inspiration within the comfort of like your own home, (laughs) your own mind, etc. So thematically, I think that's where the biggest difference is. Um, But yes, we do have search engine functionality uh, for what we call pins, uh, which is the content on on Pinterest, the images you'll find there. Um, And our pinners, what we call our users, uh, bring that content onto the platform. Um, But actually, you know, going back to what most folks use Pinterest for, um, which is for home decor, wedding ideas, et cetera, um, a lot of that content is actually generated um, from other businesses. So drawn from around um, the web um, that our users, our pinners find, bring onto Pinterest and save as a pin. Um, And so it's it's really about, you know, in service to, to those goals. That's fascinating, and I think that's very different from um, most other major uh, players, uh, platform players. So how do you moderate all that content that it's being put up? Is there a comment section, or is it just um, images that are being shared? Sure. Yeah. So uh, going back to that concept of personal media and not social media or social networking um, and our mission, bringing everyone the inspiration to create life they love uh, to help us achieve that mission. We develop and enforce 
content policies to ensure that our platform is a positive place for people. So we do not rely on community moderators. We have a dedicated team um, internal to Pinterest, uh, what we call our employees as pinployees. So we have several pinployees that manage content moderation. And that's from a policy side. So that's our community guidelines. And then that's on the enforcement side so that it's it's then actioning against content that violates our policies. Um, so, you know, Our philosophy around content moderation is that we really feel empowered by Section 230, specifically Section C, about the Good Samaritan protection. And that protection really um, was meant to enable platforms like us um, and platforms of all size to compete to create the atmosphere that their users want. And for pinners, that's an atmosphere of safety and inspiration. And unsafe content, objectionable content is just really not that safe. And that's not what folks come to Pinterest for. So to um, to support the environment that our users are looking for, um, we really rely on that provision to be really innovative, innovative um, with our policies um, in service to inspiration. It is fascinating to me um, throughout what you've just been talking about. It really strikes me, Pinterest is not a place where people go for political debate, right? right. It's not a place where you go to tweet a joke right. it's, or, you know, share some other thoughts or like a funny video. And I think that highlights Section 230 is not a law that just protects that kind of expression. There's artistic and creative expression and communication on the web that is beyond that, that over 320 million people use around the globe. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in the current uh, debate around Section 230 and a lot of the, you know, very valid concerns around what um, the liability protections in 230 sort of allow from platforms, I think there are many misconceptions about what Section 230 includes and does not. So, you know, some of those myths are um, that Section 230 shields companies or platforms from liability for criminal content or illicit activity, illegal activity. Right. So and that's simply not true. I created a Pinterest board with a bunch of drugs. I'm guessing you guys would have to take it down. Absolutely. And, you know, we actually, you know, you can look into our community guidelines, but we sort of go beyond even just uh, preventing the sale of of drugs and um, illegal drug related paraphernalia, uh, but really extend that to, again, what's in service of inspiration and safe safety um, to the um, the promotion of drug use and things like that. So, um Being able to take that next step is really the true protection in our minds of 230. Um, and that is, I think, the piece that gets forgotten. So, you know, what 230 does not provide liability for is in addition to criminal or illicit act, illegal activity um, is also IP infringement. Um, going in, you know, so making so 230 actually does make sure that creators um, of content um, do not, um, you know, are not prevented from identifying, excuse me, when, uh, when their material, when their work is infringed. Um, and it also, you know, does not, uh, does not exempt, um, objectionable material that threatens safety, such as like child sex abuse imagery and things like that. Um, so, you know, there, those things are already covered sort of by law, right? And so 230 in no way supersedes that. Um, and the, I think the statute does a good job of being very clear about that. But in the debate, um, especially with 
the types of content that we do see proliferating around the internet, um, you know, that, that get the most attention in the news, um, et cetera, uh, it's, it's hard to remember that those considerations um, already exist. And so we really think and feel that it's really our responsibility to showcase what 230 can actually enable for good online. And, you know, that is, that is, um, that is innovate, that is innovation in terms of content moderation, but it's also protecting companies to promote, uh, you know, the positive aspects of the internet. And we've been able to do that through our vaccine expert search, for example, and our compassionate search. So, um, going a step further again in not just perhaps limiting results for searches, um, based on, um, you know, based on objectionable content or, uh, content that is unsafe, but going a step further and um, helping promote the results of trusted, uh, vetted experts in these areas. So for us, for example, in vaccine expert search, last year we made the decision to stop showing results for searches related to vaccines. Um, At all? Like completely? Or just to uh, post that we're talking about anti-vax movement? Completely. Because what we realized is that there is an enthusiasm gap in the in and in in vaccination content so there is an incentive for uh folks to promote anti-vax content because that usually went along with some commercial venture so um you know an unorthodox cure or something a home remedy or something along those lines um basically scams and so we noticed that there were, you, you know, that this content was generally generated from folks who were looking to make money off of the issue, whereas, you know, public health experts, um, health providers do not have the same incentive to share topic, uh, to share content about vaccination. So um, that was one piece of it that that showed us, well, you know, maybe this isn't all the content, of course, it's definitely not a huge amount of content on our platform, but it's enough to have an impact on the public that doesn't quite show um, where the science is and the science is settled on this, that, um, vaccinations are healthy and necessary and prevent a lot of problems and a lot of the spread of disease. Um, Get your flu shot. Exactly. Um, and, you know, we also noticed that, you know, the UK, for example, uh, lost its and it lost its um, ant- measles free status. Um, and so, you know, this content is having a public health impact. And we found that, of course, the, you know, even though this isn't the majority of content on our platform, there's something that we can do about that. So beyond um, just stopping showing the results, we also decided to uh, to make sure that folks could explore reliable results about immunizations from leading public health organizations, including the World Health Organization, the Center for Disease Control, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the WHO established Vaccine Safety Net, a global network of websites that provide reliable vaccine information in a variety of languages. There are two things that are very important to notice here. Number one is uh, what you mentioned is the higher engagement on anti-vax posts and content. And um, not only, I think it works in very tricky multiple ways because when someone posts something with those kind of ideas, a lot of people are outraged and they right? They work with that content. They react to that content. Some people support because it's such a passionate topic. And I'm guessing that somehow promotes the content to, let's say, 
higher ranking or uh, more people see it, right? Where, however, maybe not just your website, but other platforms, however the algorithm works, uh, engagement always means more eyeballs on the content. So that's, I think, number one important thing to remember and why you guys did that. Number two is, I think you also took a hit because a lot of the users, anti-vax promoters, some of them are nice people, just misguided and passionate about something. And uh, I'm guessing they left your platform. And that was a decision you made as a company to, you know, engage in something you believed in. And that's what Section 230 allows platforms to do. Um, I believe there are other platforms that have not made an identical decision and host this type of content. And so these people flocked there. The free market kind of did that to them. But also other parents and mothers in particular, I'm guessing, you might know the numbers or maybe just have a better understanding of this. I'm guessing they felt more safe on your platform. And so they flocked to Pinterest because they found out about this. So it's like this kind of amazing collaboration of free speech and free market and choice that both consumers and companies make. You know, honestly, the feedback we've received has been almost entirely positive um, from, you know, from the Surgeon General of the U.S. to the, um, you know, the head of the CDC uh, to our, you know, to our pinners um, from policymakers. The response has been largely positive. And we didn't, we don't really necessarily always make decisions based on what will grow revenue for the company. Um, Sometimes it's just important to A, admit where we may not have all of the information and therefore rely on experts who do have that information. Um, And B, um, just do the right thing to ensure a safe environment for our users. And while I don't have, you know, the numbers, um, don't know at all, you know, if anyone left the platform because of that right, because of that content or not, what I do know is that, you know, our our global and US uh, monthly active users actually grew. Um, Whether it's related to that or not, you know, who knows? But uh, we've we've still seen growth on the platform. And, you know, regardless of that, uh, the focus is inspiration and um, the decision, the guiding star is that principle above revenue when it comes to issues of public safety. You've hit on Section 230 already, and I want to just dive in a little bit more and ask you, because I think you're perfect, you and your company are a perfect example of why Section 230 is so important. Do you think, and this is a hypothetical, you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but do you think if Section 230 did not exist, Pinterest would be able to be the company they are right now? It is hard to say, you know, how things would end up. I'd like to think that the company would still try to do the right thing, would still, of course, I'd say regardless of the law, um, the company's pursuit of inspiration and that as our as the North Star would remain. And that pursuit would make sure that, uh, you know, safety and uh, what's right for our users is at the core of what we do and that we put them first. Um, but it would be difficult. And without the liability protections from, uh, from 230 to innovate on responsibly moderating content, um, that would actually open, and in the past, in fact, part of the reason why the the law was written and the statute was written this way was because companies actually did face uh, 
suit and were under attack for um, for responsibly moderating content, for removing bad for removing content. Bad content. Um, if I remember correctly, I believe it's a seminal case. I should really know this, but I'm not a lawyer, so that will be my excuse as to not why. I'm sure you do know this, uh, but I believe it was the Prodigy case. So around the same time, there were you know there were two suits, uh, and one was about not removing content and allowing it to proliferate. And uh, the other was about removing bad content. And which suit uh, won? So the company that was uh, sued for not removing content won, while the company that was sued for removing content actually lost. And was liable. Yeah. Was found liable. And so that liability, you know, it's so it's not a hypothetical that if the 230 Good Samaritan protection did not exist, that um, companies would actually face liability, damaging liability for being responsible and for removing bad content. Yes, thank you so much for mentioning it. I think it sounds better when a not lawyer says it. <laughs> Good hundred percent. Um, so we kind of dived in into like this major policy issue that you and your team work on. What other policy issues does the federal policy team, and I'm guessing you have focusing on state issues too uh, at Pinterest. What do you guys focus on? Absolutely. So my counterpart, Ifoma Azoma, um, handles um, state issues um, and actually content safety globally as well. Um, So she'd be great to talk to about this stuff, but she's out in San Francisco. Um, but of course, I think like every uh, tech company and every platform and really every every business with an online presence, uh, you know, we are closely monitoring and working to be in compliance with the CCPA in California um, and monitoring, um, you know, privacy legislation around the state. And we're really excited to see, you know, uh, both bills drop last week on federal privacy. We are very much in support of federal privacy legislation, and I haven't had the chance to read through all of the texts yet, um, but I'm excited to dig in there. it's a doozy. And yeah, I can imagine and see where that falls. So of course, we're very concerned uh, with privacy because, um, you know, core to the Pinner experience, you know, the user experience. Is, is safety and privacy. And we want to make sure that our pinners have um, choice, access, and transparency and clarity around uh, their privacy um, and their data on our site. So uh, that's really important. And of course, you know, Pinterest is a creative site. Pinterest is a visual discovery engine. So we're very much image-based. Um, our corpus is made of uh, literally billions of images. So copyright um, and, and and those related uh, issues are really important to us as well. Or as my boss calls copy, uh, intellectual property questions and copyright in general, the Vietnam of tech policy. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I'd, uh, I, I would provide the same <laughs> metaphor, but it is a very complicated issue. Um, and, you know, uh, on copyright, we want to make sure that our, that creators are, uh, fairly and adequately, um, you know, get their attribution. And we've worked with Getty and um, the um, and other organizations, National World Wildlife Fund on attribution programs in National Geographic. Um, so it's really we respect, um, you know, we respect creators works and their rights to their work and want to make sure that's respected. Um, and at the same time, we really we respect and um, adhere to fair use. And, um, you know, 
there are there are some uh, there are some bills out there. Uh, for example, um, the Case Act that passed the House um, that. Um, you know, at its core have the wonderful intention of empowering um, creators um, and rights holders to to uh, pursue those rights and make sure those rights are protected. Um, but we are a little concerned about how that would impact fair use and say, you know, with like the majority of our um, users, for example, eight in 10 moms um, in the U.S. use Pinterest. And oh, wow. many of them are pinning images on curriculum for, you know, for their kids and lunch prep um, and things like that. And um, it would be, you know, terrible to see, uh, you know, a suit thrown against a mom who didn't realize, you know, who thought she was, you know, for non, you know, for personal non-commercial purposes, um, you know, pinning an image to our site and then um, the owner of that image, uh, you know, coming for blood would come after mm-hmm. or a copyright troll rather um, and copyright trolls, which have been a problem, you know, throughout the Internet um, and for a long time would be emboldened by this to pursue uh, ridiculous damages and could uh, file as many claims as they want without limit. Um, And so that would, you know, more than more than even companies, the biggest impact there would be against uh, users and everyday people who just want to save images that inspire them. Um, So so I'd say those are like kind of the three main concerns. Those are definitely my three main concerns these days. Well, we do not comment on social property, but we do wish you luck on the first two questions. And before I let you go, I want to do our Women in Tech segment. And you're definitely a woman in tech. I met you at a conference. You did a great presentation. And I was like, I got to have her on a podcast. And here we just want our listeners to know a little bit more about you and how did you end up at Pinterest? What were you doing before? What was your area of expertise? What was your background? So one thing I love about the tech industry as a whole is that um, it it is a place where it's a really come as you are kind of place in that you can have a very uh, unpredictable, varied path to tech. And I, in fact, I think that makes for the most interesting careers. It's definitely made my career very interesting. Um, I actually started out in environmental policy as an environmental justice advocate, um, working with communities to um, to advocate for their rights to clean air and water and um, safe places to live and go to school. Um, Because in the U.S., but around the world, really, uh, communities of color and the poor and low income are most adversely, most disparately impacted by issues of climate change, by pollution, uh, by the siting of toxic waste, et cetera. And so that's where my real passion lies is at that nexus of uh, of civil rights and justice and the environment and and how current events impact um, impact those communities and making sure that we always have a lens there. And, you know, that lens is very narrow and unfortunately lacking in tech. And so um, I saw an opportunity to uh, make sure that that's expanded. And that has always driven my public my public policy interest. And I really feel grateful that I'm able to apply that to the tech industry. Um, I've been at Pinterest since uh, May of this year. Um, but before that, um, I was actually at Google for six years. Um, and before that oh, I'm that small company <laughs> you might have heard of it <laughs> I think I think they have an office up the street <laughs> yeah that uh, I was there for six years working um at first on actually um 
So I guess maybe I'll start over a little bit. So I did environmental justice policy and environmental policy for a long time, working at the state, local, you know, nonprofit level, actually on the West Coast in Washington State, where I went to college. And then I uh, graduation night actually moved to D.C. because I knew I wanted to work in environmental policy and uh, ended up at the White House and the Obama administration um, at the Office of Management and Budget working on environmental policy. Um, and then uh, from Haven't there... Haven't heard of him. <laughs> he's tall, right? Yeah, you know, he's pretty tall. Um and uh, from there, went to grad school, had an opportunity I just couldn't pass up, free money, never, you know, tip for all of those out there considering grad school, never leave money on the table. Um, so left my political appointment to do a one-year master's program at Oxford as a Weidenfeld scholar and graduated from that in the middle of the government shutdown of 2013 and had to figure out what to do next as my um, appointment was actually, they never appointed someone else to fill that position ever again. And so had to kind of start from square one. And I applied to honestly over like 70 places um, in environment all over the place and got like no callbacks. And oh, which so, is crazy. Which it was crazy, but you know, no, it's it's true though. Like you know, you think credentials, right. background, experience, good grades, fancy schools. Like I went to a fancy school. Like I, I thought that's enough to get like an interview, right? <laughs> no, I think you know. Unfortunately, I found I thought this was true in DC and only DC, but I found that. Unfortunately, this is across the board and this is a real, you know, a real issue in professional jobs is that it's about who, you know, if I didn't, you know, I didn't have I was applying from overseas. So, you know, got no callbacks. And so I decided to think outside the box, try something new. I applied to Google and out of all of those places I applied to, Google was the only one in the U.S. that contacted me back. So I started Google doing something completely different, um, leadership recruiting coordinating. So I was scheduling uh interviews and conducting interviews uh, or conducting visits for executive candidates at Google. Yeah. So start doing that, but realized I really missed, and I was doing that out in headquarters in Mountain View and realized I really missed DC and I really missed policy. So I transferred to the legal team and worked on patent policy. I was given an, given an opportunity by a woman leader at the company, uh, Suzanne Michelle, um, who's brilliant, uh, who's a brilliant, uh, patent law expert. And she said, you know, you know, policy, the topic doesn't matter. As long as you know how public policy works, that matters more. You can learn the topic. You can learn any topic. And so she took a chance on me and I got to really know patent law <laughs> and patent policy. And I did that for four years and I was able to, um, again, with, you know, the sponsorship and support of, of a lead at Google, my director at the time, Alan Lowe, who's now at Facebook doing, uh, who, and heads all of their IP at Facebook. Um, he really supported, uh, the con the honest conversations the company was having about race and, uh, diversity. And, um, he really empowered me to help the team develop those programs. And so, um, 
I, uh, I, I had a chance to, to, to create and lead some, uh, diversity, uh, equi- diversity, equity, and inclusion programming for Google's legal team, um, and specific to patents, because what we found is that, um, in patenting, it's actually one of the most stratified fields, especially when you get to blockbuster patents. Yeah. Because, um, so this is a side note, but when I was in law school, I did have an IP background from back in Russia because I clerked for the intellectual property court of Russia and all of these things. And then I come to States, I go to law school here and I want to do IP law and uh, specifically patents. And I was told that unless you have like a bachelor of science degree, like there are so many, like there's specific licensing things and there's so many things. It's a very hard industry to break into. And I was told no by basically everyone. Wow. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that's a very common experience. First, it's a highly specialized field. So to be a patent lawyer, you need to have a bachelor's degree in a science um, and uh, some sort of applied science usually or an engineering degree and which is the same. So yes, an applied science degree and then usually a master's degree in that science and then a law degree. Um, so these are very highly educated, highly specialized folks. And we know, you know, unfortunately in the last 40 years, women were discouraged from going into science. Exactly. And the numbers and uh, manifested color, that. Yes. So, uh, so women and people of color, uh, face huge barriers, in getting into IP and you know what are often what what off what is IP for it's to protect rights for someone to create revenue for themselves which is a business so when we look at IP um, it's directly linked to entrepreneurship and similarly women and people of color are um, often discouraged explicitly or implicitly from starting their own businesses from um, getting access to capital for those businesses uh, from securing rights for those businesses and for their inventions so we saw a strong link there between entrepreneurship and uh, scholarship and IP and uh, huge equity issues among those three things. And uh, so got to work on that. So I'm really grateful for my time there. And I think what that solidified for me was that tech really could be a place to address that nexus of equity, cutting edge issues, policy. And um, so I wanted to take that to the next step and, uh, you know, be able to lead, you know, overall and not just in patents or in one area of tech policy for that um, and have a social impact. And so now I'm the public policy and social impact manager at Pinterest handling federal issues um, and helping uh, develop our, our social impact work. We're very excited you're there, and I can't wait to see all of the work you're doing right now and are going to do in the future. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation. Our listeners are going to find more of your work on what website? Uh, Pinterest.com. Pinterest.com. <laughs> uh, but you can uh, look me up on social, uh, Erica Shimizu, E-R-I-K-A-S-H-I-M-I-Z-U. And uh, my personal website is erica.co. Yeah, so they can follow more of like the links to your articles and things like that. We're also going to link to it in our show notes. And please leave us a review and subscribe so others can find the show. Thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.